Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. All right, good evening. Welcome to Icon. It is good uh, to see you all here this second week of Advent. And, uh, and we are going to continue in John chapter 1. If you want to turn there, that's where we'll be here in just a moment. We're just going to do three verses uh, this evening. It is good to see you all here. Uh, we uh, launched our uh, morning service in Beacon Hill last week, and that's been going really well. Some of you, I see some faces that uh, are taking advantage of the fact that we have more than one option. So good to see y'all. And I uh, saw a bunch of normal Capitol Hill folks uh, in Beacon Hill this morning, and so that's fun to see that cross-pollination happening. Uh, so it's a good time. Hey, uh, one of the things I did want to mention is uh, it is finals week for our Seattle youth folks, right? Yeah, how you feeling? Uh, good. Hey, I want to take a minute uh, to pray. These are the ones that feel good about finals because they're here. <laughs> the ones that don't feel good, yeah, the ones that don't feel good are not here. So um, I want to uh, actually stop and pray for them. This, uh, that We've kept this five o'clock service here in part because we want to continue to serve students at Seattle U and it's walking distance for them. And I know the five o'clock works a lot better. So I want to stop and pray for these uh, students here and the students that aren't here. So if you're around them, either, you know, touch them appropriately or, uh, or just reach... <laughs> reach towards them, uh, and uh, let's do that. And Luke in the back, someone, someone touch, the, touch Luke uh, in whatever way. All right, so let's pray. Jesus, uh, we thank you for our students, Lord, and uh, the fact that they carve out uh, time in their busy schedules uh, to be here with us and add uh, so much to our church uh, add a multi-generational aspect that we really value. We're just thankful for the way they serve and they lead and uh, both on campus and here at Icon. Lord, as they are preparing for finals, uh, an experience that all of the rest of us are so glad we don't have to do anymore, uh, Lord, we pray that you would bless their studies, give them focus, give them uh, a memory of the things that they have worked on and bring those things to mind as they sit down. Down, uh, to take their tests or write their papers or whatever that may be. Lord, we love them and uh, just pray blessings upon them during this season in Christ's name. Amen. Love you guys. Glad you're here. All right. So John chapter one, we did the first five verses last week. We're mowing through John one here uh, in this Advent series. We'll do uh, most of John one or about half of John one during this, this season and then continue in John in the new year. Um, so I want to read verses six through eight, and then uh, we'll, we'll talk about uh, our, our topic this, this evening. There was a man sent from John, sent from God, <laughs> whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Um, this week in our Advent series, we are talking about peace. We are looking at the four traditional themes of Advent, uh, hope, peace, love, and joy. 
And uh, when, we, when we think about peace, um, we can think about it, we often think about it in one of two ways. Um, one is kind of at the macro level, this idea of peace as opposed to war, right? So peace on earth and wanting peace instead of war. And it's kind of this macro version of it. And I think that is often not a helpful way for us to think about peace, especially in, in the context of Advent, simply because it is uh, such a big idea that basically everybody is against, right? Like even the most pro-war people still aren't just trying to pick fights, right? Like we can begrudgingly say that sure, maybe sometimes war is necessary, but in general, we are kind of against war and that's an easy position to hold. Besides the fact that it is kind of an abstract idea that doesn't touch our real day-to-day lives. Now, the other way we can think about peace and often do is during a season like this where we will hear things like peace on earth, goodwill, towards men, we will see in our neighbor's yards uh, signs that say peace or, you know, on their front door, whatever the case may be. And it is kind of a uh, vague, generic sense of peace that isn't considered very deeply or very personally. And so um, the way I would like for us to think about peace this evening and throughout this season is insofar as it pertains to our life because peace is not just the opposite of war. Peace is also the opposite of anxiety. And anxiety really kind of lies underneath fear and anxiety. In fact, lie underneath even war at the macro level, right? It's a fear or an anxiety that we will lose something that we want to keep or that we will be out of control of some entity that we desire. Right? And so that idea of anxiety and fear kind of is the foundation for war at every level. And um, most relevantly to our lives, these little macro, or excuse me, micro wars that we wage in our daily lives, these little ways in which we feel fear and anxiety and so grasp for power, fight in relationships, fight within our organizations, whether they be school or work or family we wage war at the micro level as an attempt to gain or keep control in our lives, to manage our anxiety and fear. And so um, in this passage, these three short verses that we're going to look at, six, seven, and eight, we're going to get a portrait of a guy, John the Baptist, who uh, is a really unique character, but I think gives us, in even just these couple of verses, a picture of how we can cultivate peace in our lives during this season. So Verse six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this John, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, in case any of you grew up Presbyterian and you're like, whoa, Baptist? I don't think so. John the Baptizer um, is a, a pretty unique guy right? Like he is a character that is not, for, to be clear, the author of this gospel. So we've got John the gospel writer, disciple, John the baptizer. John was a very common name then, like, you know, Jaden or Braden or Hayden is today. Um, this was very common. And so um, these are two different guys. Might get confusing, but let's keep that in mind. Matthew chapter 3 describes John the Baptist for us, says this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, I got to be honest, when I think of people living in the Middle East in the first century, I kind of assumed they were all wearing camel's hair and leather's belt, leather belt, and eating locusts and honey and stuff that I wouldn't understand. But apparently, that's not true, first of all. And apparently, John was so kind of unique and such a character that the writer of Matthew, a guy named Matthew, um, actually described him so that we might uh, kind of be aware, like, oh, no, this guy was different than everybody else. Now, obviously, we don't know exactly what John the Baptist looked like, but thankfully, throughout the centuries, artists have given us renderings of what John the Baptist might have looked like. And so I want to give you a few examples to kind of get a composite picture of what John the Baptist might have looked like. So we have those slides ready. So first slide, maybe. Yes, there he is. So one option was that he was the front man for an indie band. That's him on the left there. This kind of classic band photo. Okay, so that's start, you know, kind of a picture. Keep going. Um, guy uh, that I just saw on Capitol Hill, actually. Uh, can't catch his name, but really common guy. Okay, keep moving. Um, front man for Counting Crows, uh, Adam Durst. Okay, keep going. Um, dance parter with Jesus. Actually, he was teaching Jesus how to dance here. Uh, keep going. Uh, 70s hair model. Uh, if there's anything dark that you can't really see, that's hair. It's all hair. It's not a great photo. Um, uh, 1800s trapper. Uh, okay, and lastly, guy who really needs to get in the gym. Uh, look at the arms on that guy, right? Like, uh, I guess when all you eat is locusts and honey, you could use some protein in your diet, because uh, that's freakish. Uh, okay, so that's kind of John the Baptist. You kind of get a picture of the composite image of who he is. He was one of those, I'm sure. Um, so uh, what I want us to do is uh, look at this short description of John the Baptist and see three things about John that I think will help us cultivate peace during this season. Number one, John knew who he was. Verse eight says, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, if you weren't here last week, I assume you were on your deathbed. I'm glad you're healthy now. Uh, and, uh, but we talked about the first five verses of John 1, which is this kind of epic introduction to the gospel. And uh, I, I want to read it to kind of see this, what commentators would call it, a really high Christology, this, this epic picture of who Christ was. So it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, in Christ, in union with Christ was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we've got in this opening paragraph, John painting this huge picture of Jesus and who Jesus was, that he was there in the beginning, that he was the source of all creation, that not one thing that was made was not made through him, that he was our opportunity for life, that in, to the degree that we are in union with him, we have life, and that that life is the light of men, that it illuminates everything around us, makes sense of the world around us, opens our eyes to the possibilities of life. And then it's an interesting, in fact, every commentator I read this week and last commented on the transition of language between five and six. We've got this huge Christology, and then six says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And John, the gospel writer, is making a point here that there is Jesus 
this, this high and exalted one. And then there's John. And John is not Jesus. John is just a man sent from God. That's the difference. And it says in verse 8 that he was not the light. He's not Christ. He's not the Savior. He was only there to bear witness to the light. Now, it's one thing for John the gospel writer to say that. It's quite another thing for John the Baptist to own it. And he does. Verse 19 says, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the one, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40 there. So John is out in the wilderness baptizing people, and crowds are coming out of the cities, out into the wilderness, to see John, to be baptized for the repentance of their sin, and he's gaining such a following, so much popularity, there's so much buzz around him, that the religious leaders in Jerusalem send an envoy out to the wilderness to go, okay, who are you, man? Because we've got all these people coming to you, who are you? And he hears the question, but he hears more than just the question. He hears the subtext to the question. What they're really asking is, are you the one? Because if you don't know this, and I assume most of you do know your first century Palestinian history, um, but if you, if, if you don't, um, Jesus was not the first person to claim to be the Messiah, and nor was he the last. In fact, this is a fairly common occurrence because the people of Israel were under Roman rule and really, really, really didn't want to be. And so there were all kinds of men who rose up and said, I am the Messiah. I am the one who will free us from this captivity. And they would kind of rise up and then the Roman government would smack them down and kill them and their revolution would subside. And then another guy would rise up, say, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to lead us to freedom. And the Roman government would smack him down and it would peter out. And so when these people come to, the, the Pharisees come to John and say, who are you, man? He knows what they're asking. And he says, without even having to be asked specifically, I'm not the one you're looking for. I'm not the Christ. And they go, well, are you at least like Elijah reincarnate? And he's like, no, man, we don't believe in reincarnation. That's, that's not even a thing, right? Like, no, I'm not, I'm not Elijah. He goes, well, are you the prophet? Are you the one to come? He goes, listen, I'll tell you who I am. I'm the one that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 40. I'm just the guy who comes before the guy. He knew exactly who he was and who he was not. And in spite of the temptation to be more than what he was, he wasn't. He owned his limits. He owned exactly who God made him to be. And I wonder how many of our little wars come from us trying to be something that we're not. There is something in our lives that feels out of our control. There's something in our lives that we want to control. There is somebody who's not acting the way we want them to act. There is somebody that we love that we want to control the outcome of their life. There is some situation at work that we want to manage. There is something that we think we know how it ought to be. And so we fight 
And we grow anxious and we are fearful, which causes us to manipulate, which causes us to manage, which causes us to do all of these things as if we were the answer. I remember some years ago, um, I was in northern Arizona in the winter, and northern Arizona is the only part of Arizona that isn't just like pre-hell all the time. And... um, and so we were, it was when my kids were really young and, and we got out of the car and there was, it had been snowing and, and in this parking lot, they'd kind of pushed all the snow up to uh, the bank, you know, and so I got out and I could see there was a little bit that had trickled out right by my car and it had frozen, it was ice. And so I get out and I'm kind of doing this thing, trying not to slip. And I pick up my child who was around a year and a half, two years old, and I'm holding them in my right arm and doing the walk, trying not to slide. And then that moment came. The moment when you feel yourself defying all the laws of physics at one time, and you feel your feet start to slide, and you just know what's about to happen. And it's amazing how many things your brain can think of in that moment, right? And so in that moment, I'm starting to do this math of like, okay, I got this. This My first instinct was, I got this. I'll figure it out. And so I've got the baby, and I'm swinging them out for a counter lever, you know, and, and I'm trying to like, keep my footing and then I go okay uh, it's not that's not going to happen and then my first thought and I'm not I'm not proud of this was like well if I turned the baby could break my fall no that's not a good idea and uh and then the third thing was I saw there was a tree kind of in the uh, embankment there and I saw there was a branch there and I thought, oh, I could grab the branch. But as I'm reaching for it, I start to do some real quick math about the twig that I'm about to grab onto in my 200-ish pounds and thinking, nah, that's not going to work. And then I saw my savior, the door handle to my car that I had just closed and I reached out just in time and I thought, if I can get hold of that door handle, certainly the car doesn't outweigh me, I hope. And, uh, and so maybe this will work and I reach out and I grab the car and I hold the baby up in victory and, I, and it was saved. Now that uh, overwrought illustration uh, is meant to point this out. In moments of crisis, in moments of uncertainty, we too go through a list of things we think can solve a problem. And usually that starts with me. I can solve this. I can figure this out. I know what to do. And if that doesn't work, then we start to reach for things. And and maybe we start to blame things that are outside of ourselves for the crisis that we find ourselves in. And we start to reach for other things that could solve this for me. Well, maybe it's their fault if I could just eliminate them. Or maybe I can put this burden on this person and they can solve it and they can save it. And some of those people are babies that we are trying to fall on. Others of them are twigs that we think we might want to reach out for. And all of them will fail us. See, John John had this moment. He had this moment where he could have been somebody. He could have claimed to be the Messiah. And he, and he honestly, he could have had a moment, right? Like all of these people were coming to him and giving him influence and giving him popularity. And with influence and popularity comes power. And he could have rid, ridden that wave for a time. And he could have grasped at all the power that could have come with that moment. But he didn't. 
because he knew that he was not the light, but that he came to bear witness to the light. So I think much of our anxiety, much of our fear comes from the default belief that everything's up to us. And what goes along with that for some of us is not only is everything up to us, but we can handle it. So this does one of two things to us. One is we have this default belief that it's up to us, and then for some of us that crushes us because we can't do it, and we inevitably fail in the midst of it. Or we think that we can, and we experience these little small victories, and we begin to believe that we can actually do it. Either way, whether we're crushed by it or we are empowered by it, it is at its root for both of us pride an overestimation of ourselves, an overestimation of our ability. John the Baptist knew he was not the savior. Do you? Do you know that you are not the savior? Do you know that it is not up to you? Do you know that there is actually no situation for which you are necessary? Do you know that you can't provide, you can't understand everything, you can't protect those you love, you can't earn what you need, you can't fix, you can't heal, you can't solve, you can't save, you can't rescue, you can't predict, you can't control, you can't know. You're not God. You're just a human. And yet we have this default belief so many times that it is ultimately on us. Our family is on us. Our work is on us. Our school is on us. Our team is on us. Our group is on us. Our relationships are on us. It's all on us. We got to do it. John knew that wasn't the case. Do you? You won't know peace. You won't experience peace until you learn to say, I can't. I can't. I'm just a human being. I was not given the power to know and to understand and to provide and to save and to solve. I can't. So John knew who he was, but he also knew, number two, he knew what he was for. Verse seven says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Let's keep going in verse 24, hear more of what John has to say about himself. It says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, this group, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he goes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John knew who he was, but he also knew what he was for. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. This was his testimony. This was his purpose. And he had oriented his entire life around this one purpose. So the camel's hair and the leather belt and the locust and the honey and living in the wilderness, all of that was John's way of saying, I know my role. I know my job. And he oriented everything in his life around that one purpose. And this focus allowed him to resist the temptations of the world. He wasn't tempted by the power, the fame, the honor, the comfort that the world offered to him. And thus, he wasn't anxious about attaining it. He could have had a moment. Most of us, in fact, I'll just admit, I would probably have taken advantage of the popularity that I was experiencing. You've got to be able to spin that into some sort of side hustle, right? You've got to be able to earn something, commodify that in some way. I've got to be able to turn that into a side business or something, a book deal at least. But he didn't. He knew exactly what he was for, and this is the tension. This is the tension that we have to be able to enter in on this issue in order to experience peace. Hear this. You aren't the savior. You aren't the savior of the world, which is probably obvious to most of us. It should be. But you aren't the savior of your family. You aren't the savior of your friend. You aren't the savior of your work. You aren't the savior of your studies. You aren't the savior of any relationship. You aren't the savior of yourself. There is no situation for which you are the savior. And you have been called to a purpose. Both of those things are true at the exact same time. And now I feel this most acutely around my family, right? Like I cannot control the outcome of my children. I can't decide what they're going to be and who they're going to be. I, I, I don't have control over that. And that, that truth haunts me every day. And it's my responsibility to raise them and teach them and care for them and shepherd them and guide them and educate them. All of that is my responsibility. That is my God-given calling and purpose. And I can't control the outcome. See, we, we tend to lean into one side or the other of this, whether one, it's I am in charge and it is on me and so I'm going to own this and kill it, or some sort of nihilism where we go, well, I can't do anything, I can't control the outcome, so why even try? We have to hold these two things in tension. At the same time, John goes, I'm not the Savior, and there he is. I'm not the Savior. I'm here to point you to him, though. I'm not the guy who can save you, but I can tell you who is. And we, as parents, have to go, I can't control the outcome, and I'd better work hard at this. I can't decide who they're going to be, and I'd better not screw this up. I mean, I am screwing it up. It's just a question of how I'm screwing it up. But nonetheless, I have to try to minimize the screwing up, right? You cannot control the outcome of your workplace or your team or whatever endeavor. You can't control the outcome of your finals, but you are responsible to do the work, to study, to focus, to be disciplined, 
We have to hold these two things in tension with one another. And this is an issue that I wrestle with on a weekly basis. As I am constantly convinced that I am planting this church and that it's up to me and that I have to preach a good enough sermon so that people will come back the following week. And I feel that burden on a daily basis. I wake up thinking about this church. I go to sleep thinking about this church. And everything in between is a lot of food, but some of this church as well. Like there's a lot of things going on. But I I feel the burden of planting this church and it's got nothing to do with me. I I can't preach a good enough sermon to make this church grow, and I can't preach a bad enough sermon. Well, that might not be true. (laughs) But ultimately, God is in control of the outcome. And I, I don't know what that is exactly for you, where you have to live into that tension, but you gotta do it. Here's the thing, when we drop the tension on either side, it goes sideways. So um, for those of us who think we can control the outcome, I'll just say this, you'd better hope not. Because man, if, if you think you can control the outcome and it's on you, like there is a direct correlation between your effort, your work, your discipline, your commitment, and the outcome, then you're not stressed enough. Get out of here, you should be working. You should never take a moment off because whatever it is that you're responsible for that you're not working on right now is failing and it's your fault. So, man, we cannot drop either end of this rope. We have to hold it in tension that you are not the Savior and you have been called into whatever roles God has given you. John had such a focus about who he was and what he'd been called to do. He was able to do it and orient his entire life around it and give everything to it. And then at the end of the day, he went to sleep. And he didn't stress out about how it was going to turn out. He didn't stress out about who was going to show up to be baptized the next day. He did what God called him to do, and then he went to sleep and trusted in the sovereignty of God. So John knew who he was. John knew what he was for. Lastly, number three, John knew who mattered. John knew who mattered. Verse seven, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, if you've got a pen or a pencil and a real paper Bible, uh, underline that word believe. If you've got an app, uh, press it until it's pink or something. Um, because that word believe is the primary verb in John's gospel. He uses it a hundred times more than any other of the gospel writers. And here's what's interesting about his use of this word believe. If you can imagine that there's something interesting about this verb, there is. And every commentator that I read pointed this out, that not a single time does he ever use another word as an adverb to qualify this word believe. So it's never believe hard or believe passionately or believe with all of your heart or believe with everything you are or believe all the way or believe there's never there's never a thing it's always just believe why 
Because when there is an adverb attached to it and there's a way in which we have to believe, that shifts the focus of the verb to the subject, the believer, me, and the kind of belief I have to conjure up. And it makes this activity about me rather than, as we'll learn next week that John's about to argue, that the whole point of belief is simply to place our hope and trust in Jesus. It turns the focus from me, the believer, to him, the object of my belief. Jesus is the object of our belief. And John, over and over and over, will tell us that all we have to do is place our hope in him. So we focus our lives, orient our lives around that calling that we have. And then at the end of the day, we go, man, I'm glad God is in control. And we simply lay our hopes, we lay our effort, we lay our discipline and our focus and all of our activity at the feet of Jesus and go, you're the Savior, not me. You've called me to do these things, but at the end of the day, you will either multiply my effort or you'll frustrate my effort, but in the end, that's your decision to make. You will control the outcomes, and all we have to do is place our hope in him. Jesus does not only solve our spiritual problems, our salvation problem, but he solves all of them. And, and I know that this can sound trite in some ways. We go, well, whatever you're dealing with, just, just trust Jesus, just trust Jesus. And, and I, I know that can sound trite, but when we think about it, like if Jesus was able to defeat Satan's sin and death, like he can handle Karen from accounting or, or whatever, whatever final you have or whatever thing you're dealing with and wrestling with, nothing is too big for him. And so we orient our life around him in the sense that we, we do the right thing, we work hard, we focus, we follow him in obedience, and then we trust that like he's bigger than Karen, right? Like he's bigger than whatever that problem is, whatever name we put on it, whatever person we have in mind. I'm sorry if your name is Karen. <laughs> but we won't know peace until we can say, I can't. And I won't, because that's not what I'm called to, but he can, he will, in fact, he already did. Paul picks up this theme in Philippians chapter four. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's one of my favorite passages in all of the scriptures because Paul starts by demanding that we rejoice and telling us to never be anxious, right? Always be joyful and never be anxious. This is the command, which just seems crazy. Just seems like, sure, Paul, whatever, man. Like, how are we gonna always be rejoicing and never be anxious? Until we remember, one, that Paul wrote this from prison, so he's got some perspective on this thing. But he says this, the Lord is at hand. 
God is here. What do you you have to be anxious about? Literally, God is next to you. The defeater of Satan, sin, and death, the creator of all things is here with us at hand. He goes, when we know that and when we come to him in prayer in the midst of what seems like chaos and trouble and war, says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace that makes no sense. Peace that doesn't make sense in the midst of chaos. This word reasonableness, he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It's just the idea of like a settled confidence that everything's going to be okay because the Lord is at hand. And man, when we talk about being lights, reflecting the glory of God, reflecting him and who he is, we'll Will anything reflect the glory of God and our convictions about who God is more than being the one person at peace in the midst of a storm? Being the one non-anxious presence, to use that language, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of dysfunction, in, in the midst of trouble and crisis, to be the one that goes, it's gonna be all right. Not because we're strong, not because we're smart, not because I know the future, because I know God and I know that God is at hand. The Lord is at hand so we can be at peace. Because I'm not God, but he is. I've not been called to be God, but I have been called to to be something. And the answer, the solution to all of these problems is Jesus. And he is at hand. Only a consistent awareness of the power, the purpose, and the presence of God will allow us to be at peace in this chaotic world. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.